0: Hello, everyone, um, and thank you very much for joining us tonight. Before we begin, I'd like to take this opportunity to acknowledge the traditional owners, both past and present, of the land on which we meet tonight, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And I also extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait people here with us tonight or for those who couldn't make it, listening to the recording as well. So my name's Amelia Burns. I'm a solicitor here in HSF's Disputes Practice. And I wanted to start by saying thank you so much for joining us this evening. Um, This is the launch of the Cross-Pollinate program. This is an initiative that's been spearheaded by Christine Wong, one of our remarkable disputes partners, who you'll be hearing from very shortly. This program aims to bring together small groups of professionals across diverse industries and backgrounds to engage in discussions about topics that really matter. So the topic for tonight is corporate leadership, what's changing and what isn't in 2022. So as you may not know, we had grand plans to launch this event in August last year, and then in December last year, and then in January this year, but it's safe to say COVID has other plans for us. So we are absolutely thrilled that you were able to join us this evening. I'm sure I speak for many of you, particularly other junior professionals in the room, when I say it's great to be holding this event in person. The last couple of years have certainly thrown up some challenges, but to have the opportunity to engage with industry leaders and to have you know a drink and some canapes with friends and colleagues is really great. <laughs> so tonight you'll be hearing from a very impressive panel We have Terry Davis, who's the chairman of Seven Group Holdings, former managing director of Coca-Cola Amatil and director of St George Bank. Georgina Laylaw, who's co-head of Macquarie Bank's ECM team in Australia and New Zealand, with over 17 years of experience advising on equity capital markets transactions Drew Pearson, as many of you will know, is a partner in our employment group and has extensive experience advising employees in all areas of Australian industrial relations and employment law. And lastly, Christine Wong, who, as I said, is the founder and driving force behind this initiative and who is a partner in our disputes group with a particular expertise advising clients on high stakes regulatory matters and investigations. A massive thank you to our panel for giving up their time tonight and for our wonderful events team for making this finally happen. After we hear from our panelists, we'll have time for drinks and canapes so you can meet fellow group members and other people who are participating in this program. In the coming weeks, your HSF group leads will separately arrange a catch up with your group so you can further build on your networks and discuss further what we've been talking about here tonight. As I said, for those who've been unable to attend and quite a few people have COVID unfortunately, we'll also send around a recording of tonight's session Um, so you can share your thoughts with your group. With all that said, a massive thank you again for joining us this evening and I'll now pass to Christine and to our panel.
1: Thanks, Amelia, and um, it would be remiss of me not to start by saying, Amelia said I was the founder and driving force behind this, but the truth of the matter is um, Amelia, in fact, has done a lot of the work behind this evening and um, managing to get it off the ground and pull the speakers together for tonight and also the brilliant sort of questions and topics um, that we'll be discussing uh, with the panellists. So thank you, Amelia, for all your work and our amazing business development team and, and the staff that have made tonight possible. So we thought, um, without wanting to focus too much on sort of COVID occurrences from the last two years, if we can possibly avoid it, um, we wanted to focus on the topic of leadership and particularly in a corporate context, which I think is sort of relevant to a lot of people in this room tonight. And given what has occurred over the last couple of years, but also more re- in more recent times, um, sort of standing back and reflecting a bit on what has changed um, in terms of what makes a good leader and what hasn't changed, given your Um, vast numbers of years of experience between you in various contexts. Um, So, Terry, you obviously held a a large number of very senior roles across a number of organisations, both at a board level but also as a managing director um, over the years. Um, For you, what would your reflection be in terms of what leadership looks like and how how has that possibly changed um, across that time?
2: Well... Um, I I think what we've seen over the last two or three years and and take COVID out is the level of trust that has to be between the company and the employees had to go up substantially in terms of being able to do what you say. If you look at what stakeholders are looking at, I don't think that's changed at all. They look for leaders to say, have I got the right people in the right place at the right time with the necessary skills? Have I done the right financial allocation of capital? And... Am I prepared to make the decisions and stick by those decisions? I, I don't think that's changed from COVID, and I don't think it will change. There are certain things that are universal. And um, as we look forward, the biggest change agenda at, at, at the board level rather than at the CEO level has certainly been the rise of ESG, is, is the impact is no longer a box-ticking exercise. It's something that that is real. The targets of zero carbon emissions by whatever the time frame that you've said, um, you know, some some people won't get there and, and you really have to start now. So I think that's probably the biggest impact.
1: Thanks, Terry. And and certainly, yeah, it does seem like the dialogue on that has changed a lot um, in the last couple of years in particular. Um, Drew, for you, um, we're HSF um, as a firm is a people business. We are, you know, the people are what we sell here really. Um, and for us, the strategic pillar is taking our firm's culture and its people to the next level. Um for you sort of in your years in the firm, how how do you think that sort of you know emerged um and how has that changed, I guess, as well? I
3: think, you know, and we can't avoid the the fact that we have lived through COVID, we have kind of been thrust into this strange environment where all of a sudden we were all working from home. Um, and we had started a bunch of initiatives before that, you know, Agile 60. Um, where you know we were encouraging people to work 60% of their time from the office and then 40% um, wherever else. Um, and COVID really fast-forwarded us in that space and probably built that trust um, that Terry's mentioned. And so for us, it's been a lot about continuing to talk with our people um, talk with our clients uh, and really understand what individuals need for their development and as a leader, you know, getting to know your team, you have thrust into the lounge room, the, the shed, wherever it is that they've been able to set up their, their workplace. And so I think we really built on that. Um, we've had a variety of, um, I guess, ways to tap into what our people are thinking about, what they want from their career. And I think when I think back to when I started the firm a long, long time ago now, um, the career discussions were always, you know, this is where you would need to get to to get to the next level, whereas I think now it's much more a what are you thinking about, what would you like to get involved in, how do we help to get you there, um, as opposed to this we're a law firm, we have a hierarchy, you work your way through as a as a lawyer and, you know, the, the peak is partnership. Um, now it's a much more holistic um, view and kind of listening to people about their individual experience. Um, you know, we've launched... A variety of different initiatives uh the latest being i think our new parental leave arrangements which you know there's a financial piece to it around um, payment and that kind of thing but i think the more interesting the more exciting piece for me is really about listening to people about well, what do you want to achieve and how do you stay engaged with the business with your clients with your colleagues and everything else and then how do you reintegrate in a way that is sustainable and leads to those kind of long-term um, Career objectives being met, and really kind of more of an understanding of what the decisions that you're making mean. So, I think that's really been the driving force in the shift in leadership is it's more of a discussion about kind of the real range of opportunities that we have.
1: Thanks, Drew. Yeah, I think um, it's been really interesting the sorts of the number of conversations that you've had to actually have with people um, that you work with on a daily basis, even clients. And I think a lot of the unspoken assumptions about what people want or need um, are starting to sort of unravel a bit. And even the sort of way we work and that kind of thing, because again, there might be a model that suits a particular organisation better, but you've actually got to articulate that now and explain why that is rather than it just being a sort of unspoken thing as a leader. Um, Georgina, over the last 15 odd years, you've advised clients um, on a broad range of ECM transactions um, across Australia and um, New York. Um, have you noticed, I guess, across the different cities um, that you've worked in and over that time period, um, any key changes that you you think are sort
4: of important to note um, around leadership? Um, I think in terms of there was, I suppose, two crises very different that defined my time in New York and here in Sydney, I actually agreed to move to our New New York office the day before Lehman's collapse. So Macquarie was sort of, you know, we were pushing the boat out in New York and I was like, that sounds like a great idea and just, you know, forged ahead. And so Macquarie, as they called us in the States over there, um, we were trying to build a business and advise clients to raise equity with Aussie accents in a very difficult market. And comparing that to what we saw in sort of March, April last year as we all went into lockdown. And we were having conversations with our clients about, okay, well, revenue goes to zero. What does it cost you to keep the lights on for the next 12 months, 18 months? And that was quite confronting for management teams in terms of for no fault of their own, they actually found themselves in that situation. And there were a number of our clients who were very decisive and sort of moved early and were very surprised by the support that they received from the market and particularly their current shareholders in terms of they were being rewarded for shoring up their balance sheet. In hindsight, yes, a lot of them probably do look overcapitalized, but in terms of making sure that they got the equity that was needed and meant that they could take their mind for a moment off the balance sheet and liquidity of the business and actually focus on running the business and their staff. And that was something that was really um. I was really proud of um, that we were able to assist our clients in that respect and that we had so many of corporate Australia having that foresight and Australia really led the world. We raised equity faster and more equity than any other market and our share price their share prices and our market recovered a lot sooner. Thank you.
1: Um, what an incredibly important role through a very challenging time. And it's we should probably thank corporate Australia for the recovery and not SCOMO. More on, that, more on that to come, I'm sure. Um, in terms of um, COVID, I mean, there's obviously a high degree of COVID fatigue and, um, and the like, including for those that can't join because they literally have COVID fatigue right now. Um, COVID has, of course, though, so driven, as we said, um, and as Drew, you touched on, sort of adjustments um, to the ways that we work um, and our interaction with staff. But there's been a raft of other significant changes, some of which we've touched upon, um, the rise of ESG, I think shifting community expectations around um, conduct at work, um, geopolitical changes that are happening, um, the effects of um, sort of major weather events that we're now seeing as well. So there's a whole raft of things that have really um, shaken things up. Um, noting those sorts of influences from your perspective, um. What would you say have been some of the are the biggest opportunities for leaders in that space? Um, and and potentially some of the biggest challenges might start with Drew. I think it's,
3: you know, for when we're working with clients, it's looking at, you know, everything that Georgina's just talked about, these huge crises that have just kind of rolled and rolled, and you've never quite known what's What's been around the corner, and it's now looking at well, what have we learned over the last two years? What are the what are the good bits that we can actually, actually, okay, that works? Like, um, you know, working from home is not something that you do if you have, you know, w- we're a working mum, to be honest. Um, slash, you're waiting for a tradesperson to come around or whatever else. It is a a way that you can be more efficient in getting work done, getting things that you need to. Um, have done, be done. Um, and so I think it's picking up all of those things and then also opening up the conversations with with employees around how do we want to operate. And again, it's that kind of more of a conversation than this is how we work because this is just how we've always done it. And no, we're not going to change. Um, and I, you know, again, thinking back to when I was a graduate, it was this whole, oh, Gen Y arrived and they are demanding all of these things. Um, and I think, you know, the millennials got it to a, a degree as well. And it, it, I, I think a lot of that has probably fallen away and it's, you know, as we kind of embrace more diversity and inclusion, it's, well, there are these new ideas and you you shouldn't have to wait for the crisis to actually try them. You know, we'll fail more times than not, but you'll get some real, real gems out of them.
4: Thanks, Drew. Georgina, Terry, is there anything? Um, I think that greatest thing that has come out of the last two years is agree that flexibility is not just a a working mother's um, issue or, or strive to benefit but is that the level of empathy that we all now have for each other I mean you know we've all seen way too much of what goes on at home on you know the back of zooms and all the rest of it but you've got to know your colleagues and your clients so much better and that is I mean we're all great at what we do but there's lots of other people that do what we do and you know it's when you have a personal relationship with a client that it is a fantastic outcome for both of you and I think COVID has been you know a real opportunity in that respect in that you've got to know each other really well and the task now is to make sure that we sort of continue that empathy and sort of drop the assumptions because before we did have an assumed way that working worked for everyone but the stakes are higher now we've all had a lot of time to sit around and think about our criteria our career and you know we've had some hard times homeschooling kids and you know juggling your partner's responsibility and those type of things so in terms of what people want out of work and you know what will make them feel like there is a real purpose to their role I think the bar has been raised and so we need to make sure that we Do drop all of the assumptions and you know, whether it's around sort of how paternity leave works within your firm or how you define roles, it's about actually working with the individuals and seeing what they actually want out of your career. And we're at Macquarie really trying to do that, um, and not just assuming that, you know, like law firms, we had very um, you know, clear progressions and just assumed that was sort of what everyone wanted to do, but sort of trying to step back and do it more on a much more individual level, which as a leader is an enormous. Um, I don't want to say drag on your time, but enormous time commitment. Um, but what you can get out of people when you do find their niche is pretty amazing.
2: Um, the rise and rise in real estate is on everybody's mind, isn't it? It's it's uh, if you're not on the ladder, how the hell do you get on the ladder without wealthy parents? Uh, we all know that. Uh, I, I've got three sons that benefit from that. Um, <laughs> uh, 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 and, and you think, well, what is the implications of that? Well, you'll see more and more people say, I don't need to work in the cities anymore. And I can go and enjoy my lifestyle in Byron Bay or wherever it may be. And I think that's going to have a profound change of how younger people uh, look at employers of choice, allowing them not just to be in the, in the city of choice, but elsewhere where there may be less noise, there may be less pollution. So I think that's going to be an important component. Plus uh, the, the rise of the human resources function is you look at the the need for closer KPI establishment, more variable salaries so that you're really rewarding those people who are putting the extra effort in and making, making things work.
1: It's a really good set of reflections and I think um, events like this hopefully are helping us as well sort of build in-person empathy, I think, which is probably the thing that we've all been craving in addition to seeing each other's bedrooms and (laughs) small children (laughs) popping up on screens. Um, We're going to change tack a little bit um, and now move to sort of responses um, and different sort of expectations of leaders that we've seen in the last couple of years. And I know, Drew, this is something you advise clients on quite a lot, but there have been examples and fairly prominent ones of decisive actions being taken um, in respect of senior leaders, both in the political sphere and also um, private enterprise space. Um, and that's been irrespective of the you know um, you know good good financial performance that might have been achieved or or other sort of um, traditional measures of performance. And so, drew, in terms of what you've been seeing with clients and when you're advising them, um, what do you think sort of emerging as best practice there and and has there been a meaningful shift? Do you think that's here to stay?
3: I think there has been a meaningful shift. I think part of it is we are so much more exposed in every way now, um, having you know, worked in each other's living rooms and and homes, you know, you really do get to know people. And with the whole, you know, the COVID piece and, you know, the great resignation that's apparently either coming upon us or has concluded, I can't quite work out which, uh, which paper says which today, but... Um, You know, the fact is there will be people making the decisions, exactly as Terry says, to, you know, move elsewhere. You know, it's no longer we're in Sydney, this is the best city in Australia, and this is where everyone is going to want to work. And so I think clients are absolutely looking at this and going, what do we stand for? And they are standing behind that in a way that we never have before. And I think that's a, a large part of it has to do with stakeholders and, um, you know, the public perception of are you actually delivering what you what you say you're going to deliver? And we've talked about that in the employer of choice kind of space for quite a while now. And in Australia, really since the late 2000s, we've um, kind of been seeing the high-profile sexual harassment style um, claims coming through, but they were very individualised. They were big bangs. And then they'd um, peter away. We've seen the um, Western Australian government look at its inquiries into the, the FIFO industry in particular. And, and I think there is an expectation and it's coming through the ESG monitoring as well that you are actually standing up for what you say you stand for. Um, and that will kind of I think permeate every every aspect of of organizations and in particular leadership um, because you know the expectations are higher than ever.
1: Terry, as, a, as the Chair of a Board, um, do you see sort of any tension between um, short-term financial results um, under particular types of leadership styles versus longer-term sustainability and and those sort of good culture and standing behind broader values that jerry has been touching on? Um, and sort of a related question perhaps is how do you actually make sure that you as a Chair and, and the rest of the Board is actually made aware of issues?
2: Well, I think that you can't avoid um, when you when you run big organizations, you're always going to have some bad eggs somewhere in there. Um, and and how you deal with that is obviously going to be an important aspect. I, I think that um, the longevity and the longevity of, of of CEOs that come in with a with a job to try to correct a company and to correct a company's course. And do it in such a way where they attack the person rather than the issue. Um, that pretty well comes quickly to the attention of the board through regrettable turnover. It comes through uh, whistleblowers. It comes through a whole range of ways. So I think I think the process for, for weeding out bad behaviour in organisations has got better. Um, it, it, it's never going to be a perfect solution because you just you just got to hope that you've got enough um, articulation of what you're trying to achieve and getting enough people behind that that said, we just don't have that behaviour here. And I think that's the crux. This is not a command and control environment. This is about getting people to come with you over the trenches.
1: Thanks, Terry. Um, And Georgina, how do you think the conversations around um, that sort of leadership um, has fed into things that, that you've been involved in and transactions in particular over the years?
4: I think one dynamic that is continuing to evolve that Terry mentioned is just the enormous wall of capital that is moving into the ESG space, specifically and generally. And there is like the volume of capital globally that now invests with an ESG lens is enormous. And we have this dynamic now where that what is the ESG lens is still evolving and is not defined. And so you will have investors say to you, I am actually okay with what's happened at XYZ, but I can't actually make the decision to invest because I can't stand in front of the wall of capital that will not be okay with that. And so the criteria of where boards need to land and how decisive they need to be and how quickly they need to move is still evolving. And so we're seeing at times some sort of quiet material moves in the share par- in the share market as that sort of settles. And I think we've come a long way in the last 12 months. Um, there, It was sort of starting to gain momentum pre-COVID, and then obviously there was sort of a distraction as we were much more focused on keeping the lights on, as I said. But in the last 12 months, the disclosure that particularly ASX corporates have been able to deliver in terms of what how is ESG defined for them? Because there's not a clear framework everywhere. And, you know, particularly our ASX100 companies have done a fantastic job of discussing with investors what is ESG for them and what they can control. And so I think in the next 12 months, we'll just sort of see that double down again in terms of people getting really clear criteria to, to your point again, um, earlier Terry in relation to, you've got to say what you're going to do. And so companies are focused on what can I influence? Is it from an environmental perspective, You know, from a governance perspective, I think you know, we're sort of where we need to be, but in terms of sort of from social responsibilities, well, what is my criteria and how do I want you to mark me? Um, And then I'll continue to report that to, you you know, each results or more regular than that. But it's now a slide at the front of the presentation as opposed to something that you might find in the appendix um, a couple of years ago. So I think it's still evolving, but certainly in the last 12 months we've come a long way to actually defining what companies want to be marked on from an ESG perspective, which is helping. Thank you.
1: That's really, really um, interesting, Georgina. So we wanted to turn to a couple of questions now just to finish the panel discussion today, which now are less about the substance of what leaders are showing, but more in terms of attributes and things that you identified early on in your careers as sort of important to um, your success as leaders. Um, One question is really around um, maybe perhaps what's shifted in terms of what is perceived as leadership qualities, if that has shifted at all. Um, and sort of reflecting on this, um, as Amelia and I were doing the the questions a little bit earlier on today, um, it's certainly the case that I think when I came into HSF a number of years ago, there was a desire for, for example, diversity inclusion um, to be a goal, but not necessarily um, sophisticated discussions about what that meant and how we were going to get there in terms of systems and processes to ensure that different types of leaders were being promoted through the organisation. And I think that has really changed for me. Um, the AFI, I think, published a bit earlier this year an Op-Ed um, where the thing was effectively that um, confidence should no longer be part of the equation in corporate leadership, um, perhaps responding to a view that um, a lack of female representation, just as an example at senior levels, was, was being attributed to a confidence deficit on the part of women. And so the question is just, uh, and it can be about confidence or anything, but really, but Is something like confidence seen as as essential to successful leadership Um, and what is that or is this really just a sort of hangover from outdated views about what it looks like to be an effective leader i'll go Um,
4: (laughs) as someone who once got told just because you say it with confidence doesn't make it right and i do actually think that confidence is a really important trait and it's not arrogance and confidence are very two very different things in terms of, and I do think confidence can obviously, as I don't know, some of the females in the room might agree is used with a different tone when describing a male or female leader, but we won't go down that. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mean, confidence is about assessing all your information and then making a call. And then you're going to deal with friction going forward. And sort of how you define confidence is going to be different for every leader's style. But And, you know, diversity is going to be really important. It is really important in terms of getting a lot of different views as you make that decision. But as a leader, you have to back yourself because there is probably much better to speak to it, but it's a bit of a lonely job at the top. And, yes, you have you know, your board to counsel you. But if you're running a business, you need to be able to make a decision and back yourself going forward. And I, I define that as confidence.
2: Okay. Um, well, I'm um, on seven seventh group Um we have, of the independent directors, there are three women out of the eight independent directors, and I certainly don't find any lack of confidence from any of them, <laughs> and they let me know quite quite uh, clearly, regularly. Um, so, so I, I I think good people are good people. You should, let's take gender out of it, and and those people with the drive and enthusiasm and persistence do well. Those people without the drive, without the enthusiasm, without the persistence, don't do as well. And it comes down to work ethic. It comes down to a whole range of things. There's no doubt as a leader of an organisation, whether you've got a, a hundred people, or a thousand, or ten thousand people, you know, you do have a, a significant influence on how people um, behave to others. The way you behave to your direct reports and their direct reports is often the way they will respond to theirs. So I think the Leadership by example, leadership by management by wandering around still exists. The amount of information that you're able to extract from people by just wandering around and having a chat is, it can be invaluable and you don't realise the impact that it has on them when you can actually ask a sensible question and get a sensible answer. I think that um, some leadership traits will never change. That early drive, that ability to be able to see things that others don't see. Is as Georgina was saying, is you've got to be able to make a call and sometimes you won't get that call call right. One thing's for sure, if you don't get the short-term right, it's rare that you're there for the long-term. So you have to be able to balance that. You have to be able to balance the competing objectives. It says, I know what my long-term goals are, but I have to make sure that that I I get most of my short-term stuff right. Over my 13 years at Coke, we looked at the times where sometimes it was really tough. And sometimes it was really good. And you think, well, how do you get judged on that? Well, they judge you over the period of time. Poor leaders don't stay. I, I'm always surprised at how short the tenure of a CEO is at an ASX 100 company. The, I think the average is still under five years, which is so low. Look at Macquarie. How long Nicholas Moore was there? Ten years. And, and the benefits of that, of having people at, at that management style, that encourages people to stay in organisations and grow within the organisations is very important. One thing I'd add is probably
3: 10 to 15 years ago, I think there was a shift from this view that a leader had to be the all-rounder, had to be great at every single piece of the job. And I think more and more so now it's about kind of what strengths you know, playing to your strengths and making sure that the team around you have that full kind of suite. There are, you know, if I look at it on a really micro level in, you know, our team, there's four partners sitting in Sydney, 14 nationally. Each of us has very different skills and can, you know, there are things that my partners can do that I could never do um, and vice versa. And just Having the, I think this is where the confidence comes in, having the confidence that you know where your kind of time is best spent, your skills and everything else are best spent has been a real shift in this leadership space. And so, you know, confidence is not necessarily that you do everything perfectly all the time. It's what needs to be done, how are we going to get it done and really bringing the team along on that journey.
1: That's great. Thank you, Drew. Um, and finally, I think you've all actually touched on this in various ways um, in the answers you've already given this evening. But for a number of people in this room, some of them are sort of midway through their careers, some are at the very start of their careers. Um, what do you think are the most important things or factors that really set you up for success um, as, and as successful leaders now um, in your own sort of respective right?
3: <laughs> Let me go um I think one of the benefits of being in an environment like h s f is that you don't just see one leader there are so it's a matrix organization, and even within a practice group, you do see a variety of different leaders at different stages in their career and the ability to see people and be like, "I don't want to do it like that, and I can see this person over here is doing that really well picking that up and going, I'm going, to, I'm going to take that, I'll take this piece from there. You know, I remember looking at the partners and thinking, I I don't want any one of your practices, lives, careers, but I want bits and pieces of all of them. And being able to piece that together um, was very helpful. And even now I, I look and think, you know, you pick up different learnings from everyone that you interact with.
4: Um, I think sort of the most important thing, is just going with it in terms of taking opportunities and not necessarily sort of overthinking. I was definitely guilty of early in my career sort of overthinking the progression and how it should all work. But in terms of if you find something that you really enjoy doing um, and people that you like to work with, opportunities come up, and and you know you might sort of take things in a slightly sort of windier road than you expect, um, but sort of being open to that and taking people's advice in terms of you sort of look back on the advice that you can sort of see people were trying to give you and you didn't quite understand what they were talking about, like just do what they say. And, you know, when you've got, <laughs> when you have people that you admire and they've had a great career and they're suggesting you do something, i, I just do it because it always works out pretty well.
2: Um, some resume advice. I've seen a few resumes in my time. <laughs> and and particularly as up-and-coming executives looking through resumes that, that you can see the ones that have been professionally done by somebody outside that have never been read, um, is having a passion for something outside of your work environment is so important. Finding something within your work environment that you're the go-to, a bit like what Drew was saying, is if you can find some area to specialise in that you become the go-to person that makes you a very valuable person. It also gives you the encouragement that you're winning, and the benefit of having something outside is that there is more than just work. That I've rarely seen people. That um, I've insisted all my life that my senior managers take their full allocation of annual leave. That you know, I see people who work for years and years and years, and they're proud that they've never taken a holiday. Generally they can't see the forest for the trees. And what it does allow um, you to see when people go on holidays, so you see how well their, their work group works when they're not there. This is what COVID has done. COVID has, has, has tested a lot of structures to see whether those structures are, are, are the right ones to have in place now in an environment where you're not seeing your boss every day. So.
1: Thank you. Great reflections, and I think we're all um, dying to go on some more trips and holidays <laughs> in all seriousness. And on that note, it's very good that we've got a couple of public holidays coming up. Um, I think that's all we have sort of in terms of official questions for the panel, but we might have five minutes or so if anyone um, is brave enough to ask something from the floor. If not, you should feel free to chat to these guys afterwards. yeah. Uh, thanks everyone. Um, we spoke earlier about flexible working and I noted
3: some irony report in the press last week about Apple, you know, Corporation in the same week was reporting that they were celebrating results from selling technology that enables
4: remote working, also sending staff announcements to all of their employees as soon they return to the office. Um, And I wanted to you'd care to offer any reflections on kind of as the
1: organizations to kind of
4: continue to walk you' walk, like working whilst' still maintaining. A positive yeah. I think that like you've sort of hit the nail on the head, like that's a massive issue. I mean, we at investment banks sit in open plan offices for the very reason that you hear what's going on and you you get updates, you hear so sort of people more see than you talking to clients and you can model that. And that, I don't think you can underestimate how important that is from a training perspective. Like I was talking to one of our analysts and she said COVID was horrendous because I spent all day with people hanging up on me because someone more senior than me would call them and they'd say, I'll call you back. And so she never really knew what was going on because, you know, she felt like she was at the bottom of the call list. So getting that right such that people want to be in the office is a real challenge because there is genuine benefits of flexibility. And, and with my team, I'm really lucky that everyone actually really enjoys being in the office. From a personal perspective, that's their choice. Like their base case is the office and you know they might have a day or two at home. So we're dealing with it on a really individual level. If you notice someone isn't coming in, trying to deal with them, because my um, biggest fear is that we lose the trust. Like We've developed an enormous amount of trust with our employees that they will get the work done wherever they are and whenever they want to do it. And manage other things in their lives and if we start dictating days that you have to be in the office I fear that we will lose that um, because you've got a real opportunity here to extend everyone's careers and extend their enjoyment in doing you know what's generally a pretty intense role so we're trying to do it on an individual by individual basis but I acknowledge that sort of at least in my team I'm coming from a, a sort of a better position that their base case is to be there
2: um, I'm a bit old-fashioned on some of this, um, that I worry that when we breed a cohort of introverts, that that when it goes too far, when it goes that you don't have to come back to work ever, that, that this is a permanent role. So that, that worries me. And I guess there'll be, I was saying earlier, there'll be PhDs done on this for years and years about whether... It, going all that way or all that way. And I think Georgina is right. There's a balancing point there. And some people who just love to be with other people will be there five days. There'll be others in maybe more technical roles that, that require concentration and, and no interruptions may, may work the other way around. But I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the tribe element and, and um, moving with that tribe. And thats that four days a week? Maybe it's three, maybe it's four, but it's probably in that order. I think the tribe point is really key to this. I mean, it's
3: particularly with the weather, the way we've had it recently, you, you get up and you're like, oh, I was going to go to the office, but it's raining and, you know, I'm just going to work from home. That's fine for you as an individual. You know, I could sit at home and work away, but that's not thinking about the tribe and the team that's around you. It's not thinking about I had all these opportunities as a junior, as a junior because I sat, you know, outside, someone's desk or next to someone in the open plan space. And I learned from them. I got pulled into things because you were there. So I think we need to really kind of keep picking up that kind of the empathy piece and the thinking about the tribe as a whole and going what's the best thing all around here? And sometimes that's involves a bit of personal sacrifice. Um, so, you know, I think it's definitely balancing that right um, and certainly getting your comms straight because you can't be announcing that you're going to make a whole lot of money off <laughs> of technology that you're then not going to um, trust your people
2: to use. I was having a conversation with a
0: friend of mine and he was very adamant that he wanted to have a career back in the office.
2: I think if you line two people up and one person you never saw and the other person you did see regularly, you, you're you're giving yourself the opportunity of failing. Uh, and I think it's a simple thought. Well, that doesn't necessarily mean that's five days a week, um, 52 weeks of the year. But but there's a balancing point. I I, I think talent rises to the top no matter. No. And that that and and good good people rarely get fired. So you look at that and say well. Um, can I get ahead by doing... It's outcome-focused. You get the outcomes, you'll you'll do well. If you don't get the outcomes, you won't do well. I think the person that's
3: in the office is going to have to communicate a lot less proactively. Um, When I was coming back from parental leave with our son, I took kind of almost 18 months. And when I came back, I always intended that I would do a day or two from home um, that was just what was going to work for us as a family. But there was a lot of discussion with the team about that, with my partners about it, with clients about it. As it happened, I was back in the office for five weeks and COVID hit. So <laughs> that really fast-tracked it for me. But I think um, particularly in a hybrid world, if you're not in front of people, you're going to have to act, proactively communicate a lot more. I think that's the key point, the hybrid world. we You can't... We all said it worked really well
4: when we were all at home, and it did because it had to. But I'm sure everyone sat in hybrid meetings where there's a few people in the meeting room, and we can't really see what's going on on their face. And then you've got some people dialing in, some people's technology is not working. Like the hybrid meeting is very difficult um, if you're not where the group is. And that can sometimes be everyone online with their own little box on the screen or in the office. So there's navigating that dynamic, but also just being like Johnny or Jane on the spot in terms of being pulled into meetings hearing what's going on. I don't think you can underestimate that. And while I, th- I think we want to be able to say that you can do some roles remotely, it is impossible to build proper relationships over Zoom. You can maintain them and we saw that in a crisis. You can do that really well. But actually genuinely building a, a relationship um, you can't do it over Zoom. And so whether that's colleagues or clients, I think you need to be in person to do it.
3: Shifting a little
2: bit away
3: from COVID. We're seeing a lot of predictions about the future of work. Expect that we can see more hierarchies, we're seeing a lot of discussion about it. A lot of
4: expectation for a We're seeing it certainly now our company. There's
0: an expectation for a lot more access to leaders and that they can
4: build a lot
0: more of role.
1: They want more the meetings, they want to make decisions. For example, partners used to turn their own Auburn and how they turn How do we as leaders manage these changing efforts? Do you think there will be a flattening hierarchy
4: or does it stop? I think there's potentially a uh, flattening in terms of roles are evolving. Um, you know, to the point earlier around, it's not necessarily just being the partner or the md is there a particular role that you know you really want to carve out a niche for yourself and be the expert Um, and maybe that's a role that you do do three days a week. Um, To your point about access, I think that's absolutely right. Like I now plan my week not just to be in the office on the days where I've got a bunch of back-to-back meetings. Like you need to go into the office when you've got a day where you don't expect to get any work done, and you can sort of talk to people and have the conversations and sort of get around to as many people as possible. So I think access is really important because, you know, people have higher expectations of their career
2: And their roles, and a lot of that will fall on access to their leaders. Technology will drive the hierarchy side, and in everybody's interested in reducing your cost base to become more competitive and be able to channel that back into your customer development. So I think that um, I think the decisions there will be industry by industry. Some industries will flatten. Dramatically, others won't change dramatically at all.
1: Okay, I'm conscious of the time and I can see lots of trays of nice drinks and I think canapes are probably at the back there. So um thank you again so much, Terry, Georgina, Drew, for joining. Did you have another? Question? I was joking. <laughs> <laughs> if you need direct access to these leaders after the panel discussion, please feel free to approach them. <laughs> Oh,
3: they're all on the website, all on the website.
1: Um, but yeah, it's it's been an incredible privilege to hear um, from you. I think um, even just sort of feeling the energy in the room um, before we started as well, it's been brilliant having everyone come and thank you for for doing that and spending your evenings with us. Um, as Amelia said, we'll be in touch and your sort of relevant HSF contacts will be in touch around sort of setting up some time for each of you to meet as a group. But otherwise, um, please enjoy the rest of the evening. Um, And thanks again.